0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
1: Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Revelation chapter 19. We are continuing to look at the sixth vision sequence in the book of Revelation. It began back in chapter 17, verse 1, and it continues through to chapter 20, verse 15. And it shows the complete and final triumph of Christ over all his enemies. Now, yesterday we looked at the fall of Babylon, and today in chapter 19 we see the triumph of Christ over the beast. And the false prophet and all who follow them. Now, if you have your Bible open, you can probably see for yourself that the chapter is divided into two parts. The first part is verses 1 to 10, and it provides us a sort of bridge between the fall of the whore and the fall of the beast and the false prophet. As I said yesterday, there is great rejoicing in heaven when the whore is cast down. No more will she seduce mankind away from their allegiance to Christ by means of her deceptions and luxuries. There's a party in heaven. There's a banquet. And it has been prepared for the pure and spotless bride of Christ. And so you see again the ongoing contrast between the two women. Just like there are two cities in the book of Revelation, there are two women. There's the whore and there's the bride. We've just seen the whore destroyed and despoiled. And so in contrast, immediate, immediate contrast, we see the bride prepared and presented. The book of Revelation deals in contrast, and that is what we are meant to see in this first section. So let's read it now. Verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now again, it's hard to miss there the theme of celebration. Heaven has its own perspective on events. If we're reading chapter 18 correctly, then... The earth is in some measure of turmoil right now, right? Civilization has basically collapsed. There's no culture, no television, no internet, maybe no power grid. The economy has gone completely bust. The house of, gar- of cards has fallen to the ground. So I'm, I'm imagining that the people on earth are in chaos. I'm imagining that people are trying to remember how to do things they haven't done in a very long time, things like you know, plant a garden or pickle vegetables or use an outhouse, right? I mean, listen, obviously we don't want to be over precise in our interpretations, but whatever is being symbolized in chapter 18, we are intended to understand it as catastrophic. It says that Babylon has been thrown down like a rock into the sea. The kings of capitalism are weeping and wailing. Fatness is gone from the land. Commerce and craft are gone from the earth. Okay, so sure, that's symbolic, but symbolic of what? Something bad, I should think. Okay, now look at this, though. Look at how this event is perceived in heaven. They're throwing a party. They're rejoicing. Notice how many times in, in, in these 10 verses we see the word, hallelujah. I count four in the ESV plus one praise the Lord, which is more or less the same thing. Plus we've got people rejoicing and exalting and giving God glory. So heaven is looking at this in a very different way than the people on the earth. See, heaven sees things from the eternal perspective. Because in the long run, heaven understands that a great many people have been dragged down into death and hell by all of these cultural luxuries and indulgences and seductions. And so heaven is glad to see that prostitute fall. And heaven is glad to see the bride arise. And arise she does. She has made herself ready. She's been clothed and adorned and she is ready. Now, before we move on to the next part of the vision, I just want to say a few words about the closing phrase in the first part of the vision. Look look at the last part of verse 10. The angel refuses to receive any glory or worship from John. John apparently was overwhelmed and he accidentally falls down and worships the angel. Don't judge John if that's never happened to you, right? You don't know what you would do if some mighty angel starts talking to you, right? And and of course, the angel will have none of it. And he tells John to stand up. And then he says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I I like how Leon Morris puts it here. He says, the significance is that the true spirit of prophecy always manifests itself in bearing witness to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets like John, the angels, they all alike bear witness to the Son of God. Close quote. So the angel is saying, it's not about me. Right? The angel is a good prophet here. He's saying, It's not about me. Get your focus off of me. The the focus of all prophecy is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets point forward. They speak about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and our need of a Savior. The New Testament prophets, we think here are the apostles, they look backwards. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, they interpret the life and death of Jesus Christ. They tease out its significance and they make Plain the various implications the point is the bible is about jesus from first to last that's a good reminder and it prepares us well for what comes next now you're probably sick of me saying this but it needs to be said again the book of revelation is like an art gallery filled with pictures painted in colors borrowed from old testament canvases so it is here There are two major Old Testament influences and two more minor influences behind this passage. We'll only have time to read the major influences. The first one I want to read to you comes from Isaiah chapter 63. Now, in your Bible, Isaiah 63 probably has some kind of a heading or title. In my Bible, it has the heading, the Lord's Day of Vengeance, okay? Whoa, that alone is a clue that we're talking about the same things here. Listen to what the prophet says. This is Isaiah 63, 1-6. He says, "'Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress?' I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Isaiah 63, one to six. All right, so in that passage, you hear like an interview between the prophet and this warrior marching out to take the field. And God says, God doesn't leave you in any doubt who this warrior is. He says, it is I. I am taking the field. And God makes clear that he doesn't need any help in defeating his enemies. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. No one was with me. I don't need allies. I have observers, but I don't have allies. My own arm brought salvation. I made the peoples drunk, and then I trod them down in my wrath. All right, now all of that symbolism is going to appear again in Revelation 19. It's almost lifted word for word, symbol for symbol, and dumped into Revelation 19. Now, the other background passage is Zechariah 14. Now, this is a long one. Okay, I can't read it all. I'm just going to give you the highlights. I'm going to read the text, but I'm I'm going to have to skip some things and just emphasize the main colors that are picked up for our passage. This is from verses 2 to 16 of Zechariah 14 text says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled. So again, if you remember that Jerusalem stands in, in the book of Revelation for the people of God, this is the the people of God are the object of the enemy's ire, okay? And the nations have been gathered. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. So it doesn't, doesn't look good initially. Half of the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So here's the Lord taking the field. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, half of it towards the south. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, The Lord is one, and his name one. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. So the the, the armies are turning against each other. They're melting on this side and then they're turning on each other. Verse 15, Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And that ends the quote from Zechariah 14 to 16. So in this passage, we have a picture of the nations of the world gathered for battle, intent on destroying the people of God. But then the Lord takes the field. He is dressed for battle with his holy ones with him, and he utterly destroys his enemies by means of plague and panic. Now, the mention of the word plague and the use of this symbolism being and, and, and the fact that it's picked up and transported into Revelation 19 leads Bible scholars many of them to connect Revelation 19, 11 to 21 with the sixth bowl in chapter 16, Revelation 16, 12 to 16. Remember, in progressive parallelism, you expect the same ground to be covered over and over again, but with new detail being layered on, and that seems to be what we have here. In Revelation 16, 12 to 16, we have demonic forces gathering the nations for the battle of Armageddon, and that, again, looks for all the world like what we're seeing here. So bring all of that with you. Bring those background passages with you as we look at Revelation 19, 11 to 21. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." Having done all our homework in reading the passages that provide the color for this passage, I I think we're ready to identify the main points of interpretation. The main point, of course, is that Jesus wins. His second coming is entirely victorious. He came the first time to offer mercy. He was entirely victorious then as well. He did what he came to do. He came as the lamb. He came riding on a donkey offering peace. But this time, the second time, he comes riding on a white horse. And we remember that the white horse is a symbol of empire and conquest. Jesus comes to conquer and to rule. He's got angels with him, but you'll notice that they don't help right? He doesn't need any help. They come as witnesses, but only he draws the sword. You'll notice also that this is not a protracted battle. He comes and he crushes. His enemies cringe and they are cast down into hell. And this lines up with what the apostle Paul said in Second Th- Thessalonians 2 verse 8. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the Apostle Paul does not anticipate a protracted battle and the Apostle John doesn't see one. He sees total and immediate victory. Now we see again the contrast between what happens to the people of God and the people of the beast. The people of God up in heaven are having a feast. The people of the beast down on the earth become the feast in verse 17, right? You couldn't have a a more stark contrast than that. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire and the rest of their followers were slain by the sword. This is the final and awful fate of all those who are not ready for the return of the Lord. Even still, come Lord Jesus, amen.